Hello everyone, I'm Sawyer Vadenhuvel, and this is From the Hill, a place where we dig into the hard work of unearthing our stories. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Jamie Conniff of Duluth, Minnesota. Dr. Conniff is a family physician at Essentia Health and teaches in the Duluth Family Medicine Residency Program. His expertise in both teaching and practicing medicine is with a particular focus on LGBTQ health and for providing gender-affirming health care. He has previous research experience on improving access and quality of care for transgender people and is particularly interested in training rural physicians to care for our transgender patients. Together, we are going to explore gender identity beyond the binary. We will dig into scripture and lead into Dr. Conniff's medical experience when it comes to caring for and loving our transgender and non-binary siblings. For so many Christians, I think there's this idea that if you are a person of faith, you cannot believe in science, as if trusting in science somehow goes against what God says in the Bible and God's design of creation. So what happens when we deconstruct our binary way of thinking and take a both-and approach to studying gender? If this is your first time exploring gender beyond the traditional male and female understandings, or you have had previous experience deconstructing gender but want to learn more, I invite you into this conversation and challenge you to stay curious. Together, we will explore that there is more nuance and beauty to God's creation than what we ever thought would be possible. So let's dig right in and begin our journey from the hill. So Dr. Jamie Conniff, welcome to the show. It's so good to to be with you today. And I'd like to start off today's conversation with you just introducing yourself and telling your story. Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. Um, So my name's Jamie Conniff. I am a family physician. Uh, I live in Duluth, Minnesota with my husband, Carson, who is a native of South Dakota and um our dog uh bart and our cat sheba and um, and three three unnamed fish and uh, we've lived here for about five years i uh work at the Duluth Family Medicine Residency Program, where I teach family medicine residents um, who are doctors in training. They're they're physicians um, who are undergoing a three-year training program um, before they practice independently. And then I also spend three days a week seeing uh, my own patients um, in my own clinic uh, right on the shore of Lake Superior. Awesome. Well, beautiful Duluth, Minnesota. Love it. It is a lovely place to live, yeah. Uh, although it's probably 20 degrees colder here right now than where you are. <laughs> a little summers, they'll be worth it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what made you decide to want to become a physician? Like what led you down the, the path of, of doing medicine? Yeah, I. Um, it was somewhat of a non-traditional path. Um, I grew up uh, on the East Coast in a family of writers, and I 
thought um, all through high school and the very beginning of college that I would uh, major in English and do some um, something with my life that was words or books related, um, which now at this point, I would say a lot of what I do is words related. Maybe a lot of what we all do is words related, but it is a lot of communication that I do right now in my work. But um, but I didn't have a really clear vision, I think, of, of what that might be um, other than an English major uh, as a lover of books and reading. I just, you know, that's, that was the sort of path that I, I saw myself going down. And then in the middle of my sophomore year of college, I uh, had a bit of an existential crisis. Uh, I realized I didn't know what I was doing with my life. I had very vague visions of the future. And I read a book at that time, uh, reread a book, really, um, that I read first in middle school, actually, a book by Madeline Lengel, who I think is still one of my favorite authors of all time. And this book was one of her books for adults, actually, not well-known, um, called A Severed Wasp. And it has a, its main character is a concert pianist. And sorry, this is probably a longer story than you thought you were getting. Uh, the first <laughs> time I read this book, I it made me want to become a concert pianist. Um, I'm not that good a piano player, so that that golden stick. Uh, but the second time that I was reading it in the middle of college, I was especially drawn to a, a secondary character in the book who was a, a physician. And um, and I, I think I, the more I thought about that book coming in the sort of questioning in my life, the more I thought about that character, the more I was drawn to um, a career in medicine. This is uh, going to sound trite and it is trite, uh, but really at, at the time, and it's still true, um, a goal of having a helping a helping profession, being being engaged in a helping profession and being a helper. And so that stuck with me. I started taking some pre-med classes. I stuck with a history major, so I didn't major in a science. I still see myself as a humanitarian who does medicine as opposed to a scientist who does humans. But I, yeah, I kept, I took those classes. I, I enjoyed them enough to, to keep with it. And um, and then took a year off between college and med school, but I applied to med school and um, eventually found my way here. I love that. I love that approach of of doing humanitarian work versus just working on bodies or persons. So what type of medicine do you practice or specialize in right now? Yeah, I, um, I do family medicine, which is... Um, for most of us who are family physicians anyway, um, one of the ways of being a primary care physician. So I see people of all ages. I used to deliver babies until uh, I needed to find a little bit more balance in my life. Um, but really, we, we see the entire spectrum of life from, you know, day one or even, you know, the humans in the womb through, um, through people who are dying. And so, so that's what, what I love about, about my job, really seeing, um, so many different people, so many different backgrounds and walks of life. And what I really like about family medicine is exactly kind of what we we're just talking about is that at its root, it really is a person-centered specialty. It sort of arose, actually, even though on the one hand it is primary care, um, generalism is 
the oldest way to be a physician as a modern specialty. Family medicine is the newest specialty. It came out of the countercultural movements of the 1960s, sort of in response to what its founders saw as like too much specialization and too much focus on, on diseases and body parts and not enough focus on the person. Um, so it really tries to be person centered, um, which is why I love it. Awesome. And I know a little bit about your kind of biography or your credentials, so to speak. And I've noticed that you also are somewhat of an expert when it comes to like LGBTQ health. Do you want to kind of talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. So um, one of the passions that I discovered in my path towards becoming an independent physician um, is a passion for uh, LGBTQ health broadly and for gender affirming care for transgender and non-binary folks in particular. And I came to that passion, uh, probably rooted first of all in my own identity as a gay man. And, uh, that, that, you know, really the passion started with a little bit of volunteer work that I did in medical school um, with an organization called, uh, at that time, and I think still called the Gay Health Advocacy Project, um, which was a decades-old organization at that time that did uh, HIV testing for um, university members and, uh, and counseling, a lot of counseling around HIV prevention. And then I took that with me to my residency program training when I was a resident, which I did at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I um, ended up choosing that program because uh, of the the strong training that it offered in LGBTQ health. I, um, the... This is a bit of an aside story, but the program director there, when I went for my interview, um, looked through my application. We we're having this lovely conversation. I already really liked her. And then, you know, she paused the conversation and took a magazine out of her desk and slid it across across the table to me and said, I just thought you might be interested in this. And it was a copy of Out, <laughs> Out Magazine or, you know, Madison's uh you know, LGBTQ magazine. And it was, you know, the only time on the interview trail that somebody, you know, sort of, sort of saw my identity and um, kind of made that connection with me. And it was such a powerful moment that really probably that was the moment that, that sealed my, um, my future and my Midwestern future, really, because I had not, I'd barely been to the Midwest before. Before right. that interview, um, so uh, so I went to Madison, and there uh, the, the clinic that I ended up practicing at for for five years and training at uh, had been one of the only places providing gender affirming care to trans folks for um, probably decades at that point already, uh, and so initially I didn't have a particular. Um, a particular interest in gender affirming care, but I saw my, what my colleagues were doing um, and the kind of powerful impact it was having for people who who didn't have access to that care otherwise, and um, and realized that that was that was where uh, there was really an unmet need, and so I I started learning more about what's involved in in really providing uh, competent and responsible gender affirming care. I started doing it. Then I stayed in in Madison for a two-year fellowship after residency, a primary care research fellowship where I got a master's degree in public health and and did 
community engaged research around sort of improving healthcare for trans and non-binary folks in Wisconsin. And then after that, after that, I really felt sort of like I was just continuing to grow in my um, in my knowledge and skills as a provider of gender affirming care. And then I came to Duluth, where where I think the community, the medical community, was not as not as um, maybe aware as the medical community in Madison was about um, the need for that kind of care in in our community. And so so I was able to incorporate a lot of that into my teaching at the residency program and teaching other doctors around Duluth. And um, that's how I got to where I am now, I guess, right, as a provider of LGBTQ care. Wow, that is quite the, the pathway and journey. And I guess... Someone saw something you knew at that early stage and, and kind of led you down the, the path. That's really quite inspiring. And this community engagement and humani- humanitarian style of thinking, I think, kind of just portrays you a bit and how we view you as a, as a physician. And I think that's, that's pretty powerful. So can you give like an overview or process of what it's like providing like gender affirming care? when a transgender patient comes to see you and they maybe want to begin transitioning or what, what is the kind of visit that you normally would see with um, someone who is either gender non-binary or identifies as transgender? What, what's the process like? So you, that first visit, when someone comes and says, this is what I am here for, you know, that the, the first visit is really spent just getting to know that person the same way that I really get to know any, any person who's kind of meeting me for the first time. Um, You know, uh, in particular, I really pay close attention to making sure I start off the visit by asking about the, um, the person's preferred name and the pronouns that they use. Um, And our medical chart now allows us to kind of capture that and document it in a way that's visible to other people right away. So I do that. I review all the same history that I would review with somebody else, you know, medical history, surgical history, social history. And then I ask about their gender, usually in their experience of gender through their lifetime. And I do that I mean, most of all, I think just to sort of understand the person better and get a sense of the path that they've traveled to get to where they are that day seeing me in clinic. Another purpose that serves is to um, establish the the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, which is a, um, you know, sort of a complicated, that's a whole complicated topic uh, about, you know, the diagnosis itself, how it came to be, whether it should be, but, but right now, and when I provide that care, in most instances, it's still a requirement for um, billing and um, insurance coverage. So that history sort of provides me with the information that I need to, to make that diagnosis. Then, you know, then we talk about what the path forward is going to be like. Um, and, you know, we talk about expectations, what the different medical and surgical treatment options there are for somebody who's pursuing a, a gender transition or any kind of gender affirming care. And, uh, and then I, you know, get some baseline blood tests at the end of the visit and, um, and then usually schedule a follow-up where we talk about, you know, any thoughts further that they've had about what they want to do for treatment and, and get that treatment started. So what are like some of the misconceptions or things that, 
you hear either within the medical community or out in the public of of like trans affirming or gender affirming care is like uh, I think there are a few uh, maybe the biggest misconception that I grapple with all the time is that the idea that it's um that it's hard to, to provide gender affirming care or that it's um, really specialty care um you know one of the things that I'm really that I'm really passionate about have, have a I think unfortunately like long-term vision for is yeah, I really think that every primary care physician should feel like um, they're able to provide gender affirming care in their primary care practice. Like I don't think that um, trans and non-binary patients should have to go see someone other than the doctor that they see for all their other issues in order to get care that they need. So I think a big misconception is that it's, that it's somehow more challenging than the other work that we do as primary care doctors. And then I guess the other big misconception that kind of goes hand in hand with that is that, um, is that it's somehow risky or that the, that the medicines that we use are, um, are dangerous or yeah, have risks that, that require um, really sort of, yeah, specialty care and also, um, like prolonged periods of um, evaluation prior to initiating care. Uh, so that used to be the way that we provided gender affirming care, even when I started doing it not that long ago, like six, seven years ago. The, the reigning model of care at that time was um, what now we'd call like the gatekeeper model, which was that you had to, before seeking uh, medical or surgical treatment, you had to go see a therapist, you know, to work with a therapist for a period of time, get a letter from a therapist establishing the diagnosis of gender dysphoria and saying, yes, this person is a good candidate for treatment and then bring that letter to the doctor who would uh, initiate the treatment. If you go even farther back in the history, it used to be um, that we would require people to live in their gender, um, you know, live, live to express the gender that was aligned with their gender identity for a year at a time or for a year before beginning treatment, even, you know, even when doing that might not have been safe or, um, or practical for where they were in their lives. So we've moved um, away from both of those models towards what's called an informed consent model, which is basically where, you know, when somebody comes to see me and, you know, can tell me a path that they've traveled that shows that they, you know, have been thinking about this for um, a period of time and they understand what they are embarking upon, that we can start that treatment with their informed consent about what the risks are and what's likely to happen without requiring that they, um, that they go through, you know, kind of jump through these hoops to get that care. And we do that because one of the reasons we do that is because um, there hasn't been any evidence that shows that those hoops actually lead to better care or, you know, that that a therapist that you're meeting just now in your life knows your gender better than you know it about yourself. So there are good reasons, you know, that we've that that we've shifted in time over about how we how we provide that care, how we decide to start providing it. But I think a lot of people in the medical community um, haven't kept up with those shifts. And so there's still a lot of people who who are still kind of stuck back in that gatekeeper model. Right. So what is kind of your role with, I guess, maybe advocating 
change within the medical community to to provide this more affirming care? What what do you do within your own organization or talking about this kind of care with other colleagues around you? One thing I do is just sort of role model, I think. So I, I provide that care and show me people, you know, the way in the way that I do it, how you know other people could do it also. But then I also you know, I am a teacher, and so I, I do a lot of teaching, both of future family physicians in the residency program, but also of my my fellow physicians and other um, other healthcare workers as well. So I, I do a lot of speaking in other departments, um, at conferences, uh, especially local conferences, um, about about what I do and how I do it. Um, I do a lot of organizing within my the healthcare organization where I work. Um, so I organize staff who share this interest to kind of try to make our system more accessible and welcoming to trans and non-binary people. Um, and so one of the things that I've just started doing um, in the last month or two is organizing a quarterly series for other um, other physicians and um, PAs and nurse practitioners uh, about the work that we do, where we just come together and um, and talk about what the different pieces of gender affirming care that we offer. So it's a meeting with plastic surgeons and gynecologists and urologists and and therapists um, and, and trying to, you know, trying to teach each other and get more people interested in providing that care. And then trying to change the medical record so that it sort of reflects you know, kind of calls people attention sometimes in subtle ways to, um, to, to trans identities, um, you know, makes people aware of, you know, the, the importance of asking things, that, you know, pronouns or documenting that on a chart or just kind of subtle ways to sort of, um, challenge our, the reigning conception of the binary that's built into a lot of the things that we do do a lot of, there's an online education system that, um, that are, that my employer uses, you know, everybody takes goes through these online learning modules every year. So um, we've done one round of that already and working on another round now. Um, yeah. Trying to think of all the different ways that we can yeah. spread awareness. Well, I think that's so important what you just mentioned about the medical record reflecting who the person is and just even how huge that can be in someone's life um, to be called what their name is and what pronouns they go by can make a huge difference. I'm imagining in someone's patient care. Yeah. I mean, that's like, it's essential really. Um, and, um, and a lot of the work that we've done, unfortunately has been driven by, by our trans patients who have negative experiences um, going to the doctor and being called by the wrong name or referred to with the wrong pronouns or having all kinds of other sort of transphobic experiences. When you look at um, nationwide surveys of trans and non-binary people and their experiences in healthcare, you see just absurd numbers of people who have like, you know, who've experienced harassment in healthcare settings that are supposed to be therapeutic. And you know, there's all kinds of terrible harassment that can happen, but but a big part of it even is just um, not knowing how to respectfully respectfully address patients by the right name and the right pronouns. And so yeah, so I think that like changing the the record so that it's easier to know 
um, what the right name and the pronouns are to use when you're talking with somebody or about them is a big part of it. And the other thing that that does, you know, there is an interesting study that's come out in the last year or two looking at like what it is that determines whether rural primary care providers um, feel like they're able to offer gender affirming care or not. And I think teachers, we're always like, oh, we just need to, the problem is that no one teaches them how to do it. And, um, and we just need to do a better job, you know, spend more time teaching them how to do it in medical school and in residency. And that is a big part of it. But, you know, I mentioned already that, you know, I learned how to do this, you know, from, from the internet, basically, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not that the how to do it isn't the hard part. And what the study found was that um, actually whether somebody holds transphobic beliefs is a predictor of whether they're willing to offer gender affirming care and practice how much training they received in you know, over the course of their education is not a predictor of whether, you know, so like we can give as do you know, provide as much education as we want in our residency and medical school settings. And it may not it change whether people are going to provide the care when they get to practice. But if we can help change transphobic attitudes, then, you know, that's actually where the bigger yield is. And, you know, a lot of transphobic attitudes don't necessarily come from um, like a deep-seated animus. They come from ignorance and bias that's just built into the way that we're all raised. Um, and when you look at the way people talk about that in healthcare education settings, they talk about the hidden curriculum, like the stuff that we all learn going through med school and going through residency, but that no one ever says. And it's the same curriculum that, that sort of builds racial bias into the work that we do and gender bias. And so when one of the things that we do when we change the medical record and we we display pronouns for every patient, not just trans patients, and we display a preferred name and legal name differently for every patient, not just trans patients, is we challenge that hidden curriculum. And we remind people that like, yeah, actually it's important to know someone's pronouns and not to assume them. And it's important not to assume like a, uh, that a legal name is the right name to use with anybody. Um, and it's not just trans patients that, you know, that, that where this is relevant. Wow. That's, that's huge. That's very huge. Yeah. I'm just thinking about what are maybe some of the root causes of, of transphobia or where does transphobia come from? And you kind of touched on this a little bit about, you know, maybe it's how certain individuals were raised or their surroundings growing up or exposure or things like that. And um, so I kind of want to switch, use it as a way to switch gears here to talk about in the church. Um, I think there has been even some misconceptions, uh, obviously, in the church uh, when it comes to understanding what gender is and, you know, like the senses that we see gender in the binary because it comes from Genesis. You know, we look at Genesis 1, you know, that God created male, then God created female, and that's it. So what, knowing a little bit about you, like what as a person of faith is like your response to that, uh, that misconception or the binary sense that we see, see gender um, from the basis in like Genesis or what the church says. We've talked about this a little before, but I definitely feel like I'm more of a health expert than a, than a faith expert. So um, 
So I probably will say things that are wrong here. Um, and I am a relatively, relatively, I grew up um, in the Catholic church, uh, but in a household that was pretty secular. Uh, and so I'm fairly new in some ways to thinking about these things, even in faith terms. But I, you know, um, I guess that when I think about Genesis, when I think about gender, uh, and the church's teachings of, about it. Uh, well, honestly, I, I guess I don't, that doesn't seem like where that those teachings don't, don't strike me as things that are important to my faith. Like, you know, um, when I read the Bible, uh, and I read Genesis, like, you know, creating man, creating woman, um, the lessons that come that are coming to me from the Bible, are like so much richer than like that kind of like sort of like oh god god did this and then god did that um like you know there's so much more to the creation story than like than god creating man and god creating woman that like i don't even think uh i don't think of that as sort of um and this is probably not surprising to you i don't think of that as like a literal explanation of how we came to be as people Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, it depends on what, what are you going to the Bible for? What are you trying to get out of scripture? And we could talk like a whole hour on exegesis and interpretation of, of scripture and uh, authority of scripture and stuff like that. But obviously I think, you know, as the medical community has probably uh, transformed to use a, a word there, when it comes to gender and gender identity, I think biblical studies have also kind of advanced throughout the years uh, when it comes to gender identity. And, you know, we see a lot, obviously, in the two creation accounts. And yeah, there's two creation accounts in Genesis. We see it in Genesis 1, um, which is a very kind of binary sense of how God created or formed this world or how we can kind of see how how God's agency in the world uh, was when God created creation. Um, so obviously there's God creates the light of day, but also the darkness of night. And there's land and God creates waters. And then of course is when God creates humankind, both male and female. But then there's also this second account or the second story in Genesis 2 that I'd like to, to share with you. And maybe we can kind of do a little bit of a, a Bible study here um, or just, just digging into scripture here of what, of what it says. So here God is playing a very active role in creation. So like in Genesis 1, God is in a very, God speaks and God does. So like God speaks stuff into existence. Um, but then in Genesis 2, we see kind of God getting dirty in the earth, digging out uh, and forming creation here. So I'm going to read a little bit from Genesis 2. I'm going to start at Genesis 2, 15, and I'll read through the rest of the chapter, which goes through verse 25. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat out of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, 
It is not good for that man to, should be, to be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought out them to see the man, what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his life, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So while I was um, kind of examining parts of this, this narrative, I came across in my class author by the name of Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who is a professor of, of Hebrew Bible. And one of the things that she points out in her book called Womanist Midrash is that there's actually uh, a mistranslation of the word rib that we see in the NRSV or in the English. Um, but actually in the Hebrew, it translates to side, um, su suggesting that out of one human this next one was taken. Um, so out of, out of Ish becomes Isha uh, in, the, in the Hebrew. So then she points out that for the first time, there's also a social construction of gender that is given out of a response to biological indicators. So the first humans being called man and also woman. Lastly, she kind of talks about the two humans being two halves of the whole. Uh, which I think is kind of a beautiful way to look at how how human was formed or how humanity was formed, because out of man there becomes woman, and they're not identical, but together and individually they reflect like the wholeness. Like she talks about the wholeness of of these two earthlings or creatures uh, that come out of of this creation story, and so it kind of reminded me of like the just the intricacies of like human development and the birth of like kind of multiplicity of genders and like the splitting, like during the splitting process, like there's just so much forming there that I think is just so much of a mystery that we don't understand, um, which I think is why we rely on, on science and the medical community to kind of understand what's going on in the more cellular level, I guess. So what, what kind of like stood out to you in that text or any of the points that I just kind of brought up? Is there anything that kind of stood out to you that you relate to either from your faith or from what you've, you, what you've learned in medicine? I do think, well, you know, listening to you, um, as you read the, uh, you know, as you read that, that text, uh, which, which I, um, of course, it's not the first time that I've heard that, um, it's hard, you know, the, it's hard not to, not to initially spend time thinking about the sort of like 
you know, sort of like patriarchal aspect of it of like, you know, the, you know, man is created, all the animals are created. And then there's, you know, and then after all of that comes, comes woman. Um, and so like, so I think that honestly is the first thing that strikes me every time I, I read that passage. So, but, but then when you push through that and sort of, you know, recognize that there are other ways to think about that story and that in some ways, you know, that, that initial thought is probably both a product of both of the culture of the person who was putting those words down initially, and also a product of our own culture and the way that I see things, right? Like the way that like words are socially constructed also and stories are socially constructed and see past that to look for other possible constructions. I do really love that, you know, those words, um, you know, bones from my bone and flesh from my flesh, that sense of like connection, that sense of um, that, you know, that we are not individual, you know, that we are not wholly distinct individuals, you know, who are, who exist in the world without some kind of like a deep, like tangible fleshy connection to other people. I do think that that, um, that I, that that really resonates with me and I, and I love, and I love that. And I love, um, you know, yeah. And I love the way Wilbur Gaffney, you know, talks about that. And, um, so, so I do really appreciate sort of that, that sense of it. Um, and then the, and then the physician in me also still, I remember I had a, um, like a children's, you know, picture book as a kid that told this story. And I still remember, you know, vividly just being like baffled by this, like basically surgery that happens, you know, <laughs> in the garden of Eden with anesthesia and everything. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, that, that part of it does definitely um rings bells for me also yeah i hadn't thought of that like maybe god is putting some anesthesia on the <laughs> on the <laughs> yeah. first man there or the first human um yeah to to, to perform this this sort of operation <laughs> but then also right thinking about um i mean that sort of you mentioned like the multiplication of of genders but you're you're right. It, I mean, that makes you think that, like, you know, so this is this happens once, you know, and leads to the the creation or the construction of a of a second gender. But you know, but then there's there's nothing to prevent it happening again. You know, like again and again and again. Um, and thinking about that potential for um, for a multiplication of that event uh, is um, is really interesting. Yeah. Well, I just loved like what she had to say about, you know, us all together reflecting the divine image and what kind of vastness there is of people of all identities and gender identifications and gender expression and stuff like that. I think that just reflects the beauty and also the mystery behind, you know, what what there is out there. Yeah. And that, you know, in terms of like kind of seeing that through the work that I do, you know, definitely um, like, you, you know, I, I think that we are, and I don't think anyone would disagree that we are all God's creation and we're all beloved by God. And, um, and it is so clear to me that, um, that, 
gender identity, just like sexual identity is so integrally a part of who we are as, as individuals and as people in community that it has always seemed really clear to me um, that, you know, God created me to be this way. This is, I know, not novel thinking, but like God created me to love my husband and God created, um, you know, my, my trans and non-binary friends the way that they are. And, um, and that God doesn't create 10% of the population to, um, you know, to incorrectly, that there's not anything like wrong about the way that we're created and that we are, that we're loved the way that we are. I really, yeah, I really love that. And um, that, yeah, we are indeed all beloved by God and are created by God and therefore should have the same respect and treated fairly and loved with, within each other because if we are indeed that divine image, then it's worthy of, I guess, respecting, I would say, of of, of all the various um, identities and expressions out there. So what, what do you think, like, as, like, what would you offer advice to maybe people of faith who are trying to understand, like, maybe what they hear in the Bible, but also, like, what they hear from the medical community? Like, what what would be some of your hopes or takeaways that you would like people to take with them or even faith communities or churches, um, things of that nature? Yeah. You know, I guess I would hope for people of faith, people in church communities, and also people in scientific communities sort of looking in the other direction um, to be eternally open to new understandings and and eternally seeking to learn more about their fellow humans through like different lenses and being less abandoning any sense of like maybe absolutism or certainty in terms of the way that we look at the world because i think that i think that this is true maybe in a number of um of faith communities, although I think that I've been fortunate to have just avoided those communities personally, um, but that people see things in such absolute terms because of um, because of what they've read. But really, it seems to me that it's more often because of the way people have talked them about what they've read um, in the Bible, and um, and they spend more time sort of looking for for rules and regulations about the way life is or humanity is or the world is and last time looking for the messages behind the rules about knowing your neighbor and loving your neighbor or you know for for whoever they are and so so yeah i think that what i would wish for people of faith is um you know opening is opening doors and uh, and reading and and um, thinking more and learning more about people who maybe are are different from or don't don't fit in into the world that they you know they thought that they were in or they were taught that they were in like at an earlier point in their lives and recognizing that that's not because there you know there is some new phenomenon out there in the world of you know gender expansiveness or um 
but that, you know, but that God has created us, has always created all of us. And we're on a journey towards, towards seeing each other and loving each other um, in all of the different ways that we are who we are. And um, so I guess, yeah, just embracing that idea uh, and learning more about how to, how to kind of create that sense of love and welcome in our worship spaces. Yeah, I think that's, that's beautiful. And you talked a bit about like the, the absolute definition that we're trying to find, you know, and maybe that's not what we're supposed to be doing because that even comes in scripture. Like there are so many places in scripture, like the entirety of scripture where there's ambiguity and uncertainty. And sometimes you just have to leave a text open and honestly, just just call for the Holy Spirit to, to intercede at that moment and uh, to understand what what might be going on um, in that text. And, you know, when we try to put an absolute on things and, you know, we could apply this to gender, I think that means we also are putting an absolute on God in a sense. And we become we're trying to become like God in a sense and which the, the, the pastor in me, the, the theologian in me is, has like warning signs, like all kind of <laughs> flashing when we try to put ourselves as God and to put ourselves in the place of God, I think can be, can obviously be very detrimental. And I think has led to probably some misinterpretations throughout the centuries really of what, of what gender is and who, who we are as, as God's children. So, yeah, my hope is obviously is that, you know, from what we learn from, from science and medicine that we, and also from scripture is that we don't have to take it in like an either or stance. Like we can use what we learn from science and use kind of what we, what we talk about in, in the Bible to just understand each other in a, in a better way to leave as to what you say of, of, of loving our neighbors. And there's this Hebrew word of shalom and that means wholeness. And I think God is always calling us into, into shalom with each other and to be whole, just like how we were in Genesis two of being wholly created, both holy, but also W H holy in God's image. So, well, thank you, you know, so much for, for joining me. We've covered a lot of a lot of different topics, and I'm sure we could spend a whole hour just talking about various intricacies of 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 the medicine and the work that you do. But I just want to thank you for for sharing and opening up a bit of knowledge for us. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for the conversation, Claire. It was really fun. I'm sure we will be in touch here soon. I want to thank Dr. Jamie Conniff once again for coming onto the show and helping us understand gender beyond the binary. I love his challenge at the end to open more doors of possibility by spending less time looking for rules and regulations and more time looking for the messages of knowing and loving your neighbor. And this includes our trans and non-binary neighbor. This is a journey and God has called us into being with one another so we are not alone in this world. To close today's show, I want to leave you with a blessing. Creator God, 
we praise you for the vastness of your creation. You created the land and the sea, daytime and nighttime. You created the in-between spaces of marshes and dusk. You also created us, humankind, in your image, both male and female, trans and non-binary. Your divine creation and compassion stretches beyond the binary and knows no bounds. In you, we are holy, created to love and to be loved. God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, send us out with your blessing to show love, to be love, to know love, because you first loved us and called us by name. Amen. <laughs>